This is a Power 98.7 podcast. Now we're talking. Subscribe to Power 98.7 podcasts in iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. There's more on power987.co.za. And the clock is just spot on 10. 10. It is Power Talk, the second hour, and we continue. We turn our attention now to um, the Russian Federation. But really, it's a bigger context, I think. So this year, nearly 40 countries, as we've said, will be headed to elections in both presidential and legislative polls. So it's a busy year for democracy worldwide. Even just yesterday, South Africa's president uh, proclaimed that the elections for this uh, cycle will be on the 29th of May 2024. So there's going to be a lot of um, voting going on in the world. However, some experts are concerned that um, all these political events across the world are a real test of the measure or the metal of liberal democracy itself. Because if you look at the outcome of the elections late, uh, early December, Argentina, you look at the legislative elections in the Netherlands, increasingly you look at the uh, resurgence of a Donald Trump, you're just getting a sense that there's a rise in conservatism in the world. In fact, The Economist has actually done an op-ed around this recently. And so it is national and legislative elections across the world, but it is it really a test on democracy as we know it? So that's question number one. One of the countries that will also be going to the polls this year is Russia, the Russian Federation. In fact, their elections are... Over the two days between the 15th and the 17th of March this year, Russians will be headed to presidential elections. And Russia, as you know, is one of the biggest geographical territories in the world. It's one of the biggest landmass countries in the world. And so coordinating an election in such a massive country would take about two or three days. And so those elections will be taking place in March. But those elections in Russia will occur over the backdrop of something quite dark. So one of Russia's more more prominent dissidents, Alexei Navalny, died mysteriously last Friday. Uh, he himself had been in a Siberian or an Arctic prison, uh, having been sentenced in one of a series of trials that he's facing in the Russian Republic. The 47-year-old himself is what we call an anti-regime revolutionary. He has organized on several occasions massive protests, public protests and boycotts in Russia. He had contested uh, mayoral elections and apparently had done well, uh, but then something happened with regards to... um, Um, that election being counted, so allegations of fraud. But be that as it may, um, he previously was um, poisoned, uh, sought treatment in Germany, and then returned to Russia where he was arrested literally upon landing in Russia and has been uh, in detention um, since then. 
His family and his supporters believe that this was a political assassination. They don't believe that he died. Uh, yesterday or the day before, his wife had said that the body of Alexander Navalny had not been released to the family, so they still hadn't seen his body. And the international community, from the uh, leader of the European Union to Joe Biden himself, the President of the United States, with the information that we all have, they have concluded that Navalny was killed in prison for being uh, one of the most formidable opponents to Vladimir Putin. And he would have been silenced a month before the elections because even in prison, um, his influence over uh, the body politic was felt, particularly for a younger generation of Russian. Now, I'm being careful with the words that I'm using because there's an official statement that he died in custody uh, after taking a short walk and then had respiratory problems, and it's cold in Russia. That's plausible. But nobody outside of Russia believes that that's true. And his death, six weeks before an election, is being linked to the election itself, is that when you've got a political prisoner, which is how Alexei Navalny is viewed, then he creates a very big threat even from inside of those uh, prison walls to the political establishment of the day. Now, Navalny's death is just one in a litany of deaths of political opponents over the last 10 or 15 years in Russia. I can give you names and tell you how they all died. Alexander Litvinenko in 2006, poisoned uh, with polonium-220, Whilst in London, he himself was a former FSB operative. FSB is the organization that's replaced the KGB. Um, late last year, Yevgeny Prigozhin, uh, who had founded that mercenary group known as the Wagner Group that had done the bidding um, of the Russian state and client states in Africa and in Eastern Europe, and had also fought part of the war in Ukraine. Um, when he had mutinied against the Russian military, Three months later, he died uh, in a plane accident with eight others. Maybe it was just a plane accident. Boris Nemstov, an opposition leader, was assassinated in 2015. Uh, renowned journalist Anna Politkovskaya, uh, who had reported critically about the conduct of the Russian uh, army in Chechnya. Um, she died in 2006 in what was called uh, an assassination for sure. People were arrested, but nobody knows who ordered the hit. We know of Mikhail Kordokovsky, who spent 10 years in jail, a billionaire, who had acquired a state-owned company known as Yukos, had been requested to participate in a form of what South Africans would call state capture. When he didn't do it, he was thrown in jail. His company was seized, stripped, sold for less than uh, one euro, and then those assets distributed. Ten years later, he was released. He went into exile uh, in Switzerland, I think it is. Um, and other oligarchs as well, as well from Berezovsky to Badri Patashkavili uh, to Nikolai Glushkov to Yuri uh, Golubev also died mysteriously in different parts of the world. And so that's just a brief history to say... Connect the dots, and it feels like nothing is exactly <clears throat> as it should be in Russia. Musa, 
You seem very impatient to be in the conversation, so let's bring you in. Musa Mdunge, he's a political analyst and comparative politics seminal teacher at the University of Dundee in the UK. Perhaps you can help us understand what's going on in Russia and whether or not all these mysterious deaths, arrests, they are linked. Or are people just comfortable to make Putin a bogeyman? Thank you so much, Lerato. Good morning to you and good morning to your listeners. Uh, you know, look, you've, you, you've, you've put it so well. You know, Russia is really an enigma um, to so many of us, particularly those in the West who continue in many ways to, to, to do miscalculations in their understanding of Russian politics and what it would take for a country such as this to turn towards democracy. You know, fundamentally, the reason why Russia, you know, remains this enigma but a country of great interest is because we're talking about a country that really, since, you know, the inception of modern of modern day Russia, you know, has always been a country that that has faced political violence where power has had to be assumed in violent ways and maintained in a violent ways, whether we think of the days of the Russian Empire under Ivan the Terrible, whether we think, you know, of even the Soviet Union and, under Joseph Stalin, you know, and, 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 and the Communist Party, you know, Vladimir Putin is simply following in a tradition of a political culture that is fundamentally rooted in violence, that is fundamentally rooted in establishing a political and economic elite, and where fundamentally power must rest in the hands of one person, where the leader is the state and the state is the leader. And that is what makes Vladimir Putin such an interesting character in the 21st century, in a time where we would think that democracies would thrive and where, you know, there would be checks and balances in order to ensure that power is invested in the hands of one particular man, yeah. Russia as still a democracy, given that it is going through the tradition of an election mm-hmm. come next month, you know, is very much and can very much be characterized, you know, in the ilk of an authoritarian regime right. that uses democracy and democratic institutions um, to the to the inference of that regime, rather than to the development of democratic of democratic traditions in that country, oh. and that is why Vladimir Putin remains such a powerful man, because even the institutions that are there as a check and a balance to his power are in fact there to strengthen his hold and grip to power, rather than to be a right. check or in such a time as this. Um, a, a route to which to remove the president. And that is what we're not going to see okay. next week, next month's election. Okay, you've said something really interesting. So firstly, you've reminded us of the history of how Russia became a country, and yes. for that matter, a formidable country in world affairs. And you've taken us back more than a thousand years, okay? Uh, so yes. millennia. It's <coughs> always been one where politics is... Eat, uh, kill or be killed, um, eat or die. It's 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 yes. always been that kind of real politic, okay? And that culture is embedded in Russia, is what you're saying. Especially when you look at the size of the Russian Federation, how big that country is. You can't control yes. such a vast land mass um, outside of centralizing authority. You've also said that in this era, 
democracy is used in Russia to almost validate and reinforce an authoritarian regime. So for all yes. intents and purposes, it's an authoritarian state, but it will use aspects of democracy like an election to reinforce the power of those central uh, political elites in the Kremlin. Indeed. You must remember that with authoritarian regimes, such as the one that Vladimir Putin leads, legitimacy is, is the core consideration of the political leadership in a manner that we perhaps do not see in democracies or functioning democracies mm-hmm. where the institutions and, and events such as elections are there and produce that legitimacy. The fact that you and I will go on and vote in, in the South African elections by our mere presence in the in those at, at those ballot boxes, what we do is we legitimize the state okay. naturally. So now authoritarian regimes and, and in this case, you know, Russia has elections, but take a China for example, where there are no elections, for example, mm-hmm. then how do you then ensure legitimacy or the people's buy-in? In other words, you you know, uh, still even in countries where mm-hmm. a buy-in, as we think about it in democracies, yeah. is 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 not required. A buy-in is still required nonetheless. You need the people's buy-in. And that is why Vladimir Putin becomes such an interesting character in the very fact that his popularity, when we track it from the year 2000, has really sat between an average of 60 to 90 percent. You know, what what causes um, such huge levels of support for such a person if, in fact, he is anti-democracy and human rights? And the reason I started with the historical context is really to come to this particular point. It's to say that um, the legitimacy of his regime is linked to security. So if we are to understand the political culture that informs the Russian people, Mm. security is perhaps placed higher than the other civil liberties that you and I may be concerned about. And that is the center and the reason why Vladimir Putin's presidency has been so powerful and without any equal. Okay. Okay. And so there's two aspects to that security, Mosa. There's the security, which is the threat externally. And we all know uh, how things have played out in Ukraine because it all began, um, well, they say it began in the Donbass and, and, um, you know, uh, the ostracization of Russian people inside. But it's really about NATO's encroachment east. And Russia feels very much like the rest of the world is starting to suffocate them and uh, to intimidate them. So... Ukraine becomes the frontier for this geopolitical battle. But then there are security issues inside the country. So let's start with what's happening outside and then I'll bring you inside. Perfect. So, you know, of course, you know, uh, Vladimir Putin has, has, um, you know, for the past 10 years really built uh, a a strong anti-Western imperialistic uh, framing uh, of his foreign policy. And in many ways, it goes back to this issue of legitimacy, this issue of security, you know, that that is so central 
to 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 the Russian people, and because he understands this, he has framed you know the the expansion of NATO uh, over the past twenty years uh, as a great threat to to Russia, as a reneging of the political settlement of of of, of the nineteen nineties, which saw the end of the Soviet Union and the end effectively of the Cold War, and in many ways he has framed Western actions as a re-establishment of Cold War lines again. And that is why he then is able to justify uh, you know the morality of 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 attacking and invading Ukraine. We've seen him do this before. We think of the war in Georgia in 2008. Mm-hmm. You you know again you know punching on similar arguments as he has in Ukraine. And then there's the other great idea that he seems to be going back to, and there is a nostalgia. For, 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 for the old, you, you know, Russian empire, you know, and this idea okay. of Russia being a great country, Russia okay. being a, 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 a superpower of the world. And that is why he called the end of the Soviet Union perhaps the greatest uh, uh, tragedy mm-hmm. of the 20th century. Okay. So, he, so he's know, nostalgic and, about uh, Russia's glory days in the world. Let's talk about insecurity yes. within Russia. And this now speaks to a lot of the names I've mentioned earlier on. Um, just last year, we saw a fallout with uh, Yevgeny uh, Prigozhin and the Wagner Group. Um, and what we're told is, whilst they were sort of friends, the Wagner Group was a loose military militia that had been set up uh, yes. with the tacit understanding of the Kremlin to see if they could influence Russian foreign affairs in client states, Belarus, etc., etc., and in parts of Africa. But when things didn't quite work out well, and the Wagner group came back as this militia to say, we thought we'd have a better arrangement with the official army of Russia, it felt like a mutiny, and then things went pear-shaped. Insecurity, within the security establishment. Then there are people like Alexei Navalny. Uh, 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 I I don't know if we call him a pro-democracy figure, but certainly an individual who challenged the regime of the time, young, energetic with a new message, appealing now to an urban, younger Russian voter, contested the mayoral elections, uh, we're told did well, but those elections were nullified or the vote wasn't counted. But the point is a new figure who stood juxtaposed to Putin and his traditionalism and, you know, and everything that represents old Russia, Navalny represented a possible new Russia. And now he's dead. Yes. So, you you know, um, this is where Russia becomes even, even perhaps more interesting when we now look into the internal dynamics. You know, um, just because, you know, Putin has been popular for the past 20 or so years, you know, doesn't mean that he has not gone without any challenge. You know, so the, 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 the likes of Alexei Navalny are, are become critical when we then discuss, you know, the challenges that Putin has faced. One, you know, the older he gets, the less connected he is to a younger generation. And this is a generation influenced, that is highly influenced by social media. 
media and the events that are happening in other countries and sees how democracy seems to be favoring other countries, especially when we look in terms of, of economics. You know, Russia has faced many challenges in terms of its economy. When, you know, oil prices and, and resource prices are good, Russia does well. But at, at the same time, you know, it's a country that faces many sanctions. You know, there are many challenges to its economy. And in many ways, you know, this has fed into the challenges and the threats that Putin then mm. faces internally, you know, by such, by, by such men who have then risen up, especially when we look at urban areas, mm. where we see is the springboard for the kind of opposition support that, that we see against Vladimir Putin. So that is why in, in retaliation to this, we have seen a crackdown of political opposition, but we've also seen a crackdown even over the media. So there has been a strengthening of the state's control over media, a strengthening of the state's control over other democratic institutions, even the judiciary as well, which would play a critical role in in ensuring the validity of of the elections that will happen next month. Even the judiciary itself faces control uh, by the political elite. And so internally, he has threats, but he has somewhat been able to consolidate his power. And by using, of course, these violent and very much anti-democratic methods to do it. Okay. And very briefly, Mosa, so it's almost a foregone conclusion. Vladimir Putin will win this election. But what does it mean for world affairs and the current state of the world? And the fact that in other countries, we're just seeing a rise in conservatism. When we look at the rise of Geert Wilders in the Netherlands, uh, we look at the election in uh, Argentina, the resurgence of Trump. What's happening in the world right now? Well, look, you know, the world is is an interesting place. You know, I was telling some friends yesterday at church that, you know, for, for you to understand 2024, you know, read all media from all ideology, you know, to get a pattern in understanding where the world is going. And so I think you've hit it on the nail when you say that, look, there is a rise of conservatism, there is a rise of, of, of the extreme right in many countries in response to perhaps the failure of the global political system in order to maintain, uh, you, you know, d- democracy, but not only that, the economic fruit of the capitalist system. So in many ways, the political system in the world has failed to maintain the economic system and vice versa. And that is what we're going to see in many countries across the world that are going to elections is that the political elites are going to be asked questions around their response to the economic challenges of the world, number one. Number two, the security challenges that the world faces today. Never would we think in any time if we think in the United States, mm. the fact that the Democratic okay. Party, you know, the Democrats on 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 foreign on a foreign policy issue such as Israel would really be you, 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 yeah. you would really be you, you know very much in a critical position where they are likely to lose the support of a huge base yeah. in in terms of the Arab population okay. and on the other side. We never thought that the Republican parties would t- Republican Party Gain would turn away from countries like Ukraine. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Musa, a lot's going on, but thanks for your time. It's news time.
You've been listening to a Power 98.7 podcast. For more podcasts, visit power987.co.za or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.